I'm Ruxandra Guidi, host of The Catch, a podcast from Foreign Policy and the Walton Family Foundation about the seafood we eat and the impact it can have on our world. This season, we'll hear how Norway is handling cod's changing migration patterns and what it says about fisheries in other parts of the world. Season three of The Catch is out now. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Washington Post, this is Colby. Yeah, yeah. Hi, it's Stephanie McCrumman from The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, March 1st. Today, accountability for the death of Jamal Khashoggi and the other thorny challenges for Biden in the Middle East. After the October 28th murder of Jamal Khashoggi, various reports were leaked from the CIA saying that they believed that the crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, had either ordered it or was definitely responsible for the killing by Saudi agents. Congress, beginning in 2019, started demanding uh, some kind of unclassified version of these conclusions, and they actually passed a law ordering the administration to tell them in an unclassified way what the conclusions were that had been drawn. Karen DeYoung covers national security for The Post, and she's been reporting on the death of journalist and Washington Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi. For two years, the Trump administration basically ignored this legal mandate. When President Biden's nominee for the intelligence director had her confirmation hearing, she, Avril Haines, was directly asked, If you are confirmed, will you submit to the Congress the unclassified report required by the law? Yes, Senator. I absolutely will follow the law. Thank you. Now we have it released. It's very short but they have complied with what they promised to do. And what are the top-line takeaways of this report? The very first paragraph says, we believe that Mohammed bin Salman authorized the killing of Jamal Khashoggi. It then goes on to say, uh, this is why we think that. It describes his position in Saudi Arabia, that he is a de facto leader, that nothing happens of this magnitude without his direct involvement, that the agents who did it worked for a small uh, special unit in the intelligence service that reported directly to him. I believe that there there is other more direct intelligence that was not included in this unclassified version. But basically, they concluded that he did it. So this confirms a lot of what we as Americans had heard previously, that this was essentially a direct result of the actions or intentions of Mohammed bin Salman. Right. And the, and the report also notes that 
this special unit that he established really was charged with finding dissidents all over the world and that there had been other examples of people, Saudis, citizens in exile, essentially, just simply disappearing, as well as a lot of Saudi dissidents inside of Saudi Arabia. So it was in keeping with a pattern. There had been other investigations, both outside and inside the United States, here in the intelligence community, that had drawn those conclusions. The report itself was not any big surprise. It was the fact that it was finally made public, intelligence conclusions, unclassified, and responded to what Congress had demanded. And has President Biden responded to the results of this report or said anything about what he will do going forward because of this confirmation of the involvement of Mohammed bin Salman? You know, before they released it, they had many, many, many internal meetings, um, knowing that, that this was going to be very carefully watched. The biggest question was, would they sanction him directly as an individual? Would they, you know, say he'll never get a visa? Would they freeze all of his funds overseas? And basically they concluded that it was just too hard. His money, his resources are directly tied to the Saudi government. They concluded that they would bring sanctions against everyone below him that they knew was directly involved in the killing establish a new law that applied to every country, which they call the Khashoggi ban, that says anyone who's found to be involved in suppressing journalists, free speech at home and abroad, anyone tracking dissidents would be prohibited from getting a visa to come to the United States. And that their relationship with him would not be as the de facto ruler of, of Saudi Arabia, which he is now, but as a defense minister, which he also is, which means that he would not be treated by the United States as the leader of Saudi Arabia, which which the Trump administration um, had essentially done. But it seems like these actions that the Biden administration is taking are still falling short from what a lot of people expected or hoped or thought that Biden was going to do based on how he talked about Saudi Arabia on the campaign trail. Khashoggi was, in fact, murdered and dismembered. And I believe in the order of the crown prince. And I would make it very clear we were not going to, in fact, sell more weapons to them. Secretary of State Antony Blinken was asked about this, and I'm wondering, what did he say about this idea that the U.S. isn't taking as strong a stand as possible in light of the findings of this report? Well, he basically said... The relationship with Saudi Arabia is bigger than any uh, one individual. Uh, The president engaged, uh, as you know, uh, with King Salman. We deal Uh, with Saudi Arabia, the country. We don't deal with any individual there's an argument to be made for that. And all of their arguments about why it's just a step too far to actually sanction this individual. The problem is that a lot of people, as you said, think that's not enough. You know, they want punishment. They look at what Biden said on the campaign trail that Saudi Arabia... We were going to, in fact, make them pay the price and make them, in fact, the pariah that they are. Pariah that it is, he said, for this. He has done other things. Uh, He has stopped U.S. weapons sales of anything that's being used in the Saudi war in Yemen. He said that every other Saudi purchase of U.S. defense equipment is currently under review. And that's a pretty big deal because the Saudis are the biggest customer for U.S. arms of anybody in the world. 
When you look at how the Biden administration is starting to lay out its plan on dealing with Saudi Arabia, what do you think that tells us about how Biden is approaching foreign policy more generally? I think he's I think it's pretty cautious, but I think that there are legitimate reasons for that. Again, he's going to get a lot of criticism for being seen as not cracking down enough. At the same time, they've been very careful always to say that they are committed to the defense of Saudi Arabia. Virtually all of the Saudi military equipment is from the United States, and that requires endless maintenance, spare parts, people going back and forth. And they feel, in general, that, you know, the Saudis are an enormously important player in the Middle East. They are an enormously important player in the Muslim world. And so they've they've basically taken a a calibrated stance. And, and again, they'll get criticism for that. Karen DeYoung covers national security for The Post. In-laws, love them or hate them, you're pretty much stuck with them. And when you're a ruler in the Middle Ages, that can be a serious problem. It might even land you dead. I'm Dan Jones, and on season four of This Is History, I'm telling the story of England's weirdest king, Henry III. He's in way over his head, and he's surrounded by bloodthirsty relatives with their eyes on his throne. To listen, search This Is History and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Biden, of course, campaigned rather conspicuously on this idea that he and his administration would bring about a kind of restoration of American leadership on the world stage. Ishan Theroux writes about foreign affairs for The Post. After four years of what's been perceived as kind of wrecking ball diplomacy by Trump, When it comes to the Middle East, it's a pretty thorny set of challenges that await President Biden. Having to both think through what these challenges mean for his, for for American interests, but also having to undo some of the work that Trump did. So it seems like Biden's relationship with Saudi Arabia is going to be complicated or somewhat of a high-wire act. Uh, What are the other challenges that Biden is facing right now? Of course, the main one on his plate and the one that he's probably most focused on when it comes to the Middle East is, is attempting to salvage the nuclear deal with Iran. When he was vice president, as we know, in 2015, the U.S. presided over this forging of the nuclear deal with the Iranians, a deal that essentially put a box around the Iranian nuclear program and which international inspectors believed was working. Uh, the Iranians were not enriching uranium at certain levels to get towards a nuclear weapon. And it was seen at the time as a vital stepping stone toward a greater diplomatic opening with the Iranians. Of course, that all changed when Trump came in, opted eventually to scrap the U.S.'s commitment to the deal and reimpose sanctions on Iran. 
And then in the last couple of years, you've seen the Iranians themselves react to these sanctions by abrogating the terms of the deal and starting enrichment. And then this past week, there was a major showdown. The Iranians were wanted to implement a new law where they would block UN inspectors from their nuclear sites. And so you had a, a moment of shuttle diplomacy that stopped the Iranians from fully blocking inspectors, which would have been a big deal. And now you're seeing the Biden administration and the Europeans work their way towards a process with the Iranians to, to, to lower tensions and hopefully down the road bring both sides back into the deal. It's a bit fraught. It's a bit complicated. There's a lot of domestic pressure against this, both in Washington and in Iran, where in Iran you have hardliners who essentially say, we don't trust uh, any kind of diplomacy with the West at this point, and we don't want to, to concede anything anymore to the Americans. And I feel like that's the part that I find very interesting or or the big question in all of this. Like, of course, it makes sense to me that the Biden administration wants to basically go back to the deal that Obama put in place to feel like they are on better diplomatic terms with Iran. But does Iran want that? Is their attitude a sense of openness to, okay, sure, we can go back to this thing that was established by Obama a few years ago and pretend like the Trump administration never happened? Or is their attitude that they feel burned and they say, you know, this was the one chance to try to have a deal where we were all on the same page of how to move forward and you all messed it up. So why would we go back to that? At least in terms of their public statements, it's it's very much the latter. On Sunday, you saw the Iranians reject this proposed set of talks brokered by the the Europeans with the Americans, which would have been a pretty significant first step towards some kind of process of diplomacy or solution to the current impasse. And the, the reason for their rejection of that was what they've been essentially telegraphing all along, which was that, you know, we have not seen the sanctions relief or at least a fraction of sanctions relief that we demand right now. And that it's the fault of the Americans who unilaterally decided to abrogate the terms of a nuclear deal that international observers by and large believe Iran was adhering to and impose these sanctions. And so it should be the Americans who have to make the first step. Now, we're led to believe that in private and in terms of the the kind of channels of communication that are open between the Iranians and the West, that their position in private is, is considerably more nuanced than what they are articulating in public, and that they will probably engage in a process that eventually finds some sort of tit-for-tat set of agreements. And I also want to talk a bit more about the U.S.'s relationship with Israel, because I think, at least to me, it seemed like one of the big narratives from the Trump administration's foreign policy was the extent to which Trump was friends with Benjamin Netanyahu. They were just like similar personalities. They seemed to really get along, and that really shaped the U.S.'s relationship with Israel. Is that something that we anticipate going forward for the Biden administration? It's a huge issue. Uh, the Trump administration, I mean, President Trump himself, really smashed a lot of norms when it came to the U.S.-Israeli relationship, and specifically the Israeli-Palestinian peace process. He basically gave a series of gift, political gifts to Netanyahu. Netanyahu, at the same time, held Trump in tight political embrace over the past four years. Biden is... Absolutely. And, and as well as Vice President Kamala Harris, 
you could hardly describe them as anti-Israeli politicians. They value the Israeli relationship and they will want to maintain it. I think the main distinction they will want to draw in the coming months, and of course, again, Israel is about to have its fourth election in, in less than two years. And so what they want to to draw a line under is that they're happy to develop a strong bond with the Israelis, but they don't necessarily want to yoke their their agenda to that of Netanyahu. And that's a distinction that will probably not please Netanyahu, but won't necessarily either change some of the facts on the ground that have been formalized by Trump. What are those? Essentially, we're looking at a situation where the quote-unquote two-state solution has been effectively put in the ground by the Trump administration. The possibility of an independent, viable Palestinian state looks remote. And it doesn't seem at all clear that the Biden administration will want to exert the kind of leverage they would need to to make it a possibility again in the next few years, or that they have that leverage at this point to do that. Uh, And so there's going to be a, a pretty delicate dance about that in the months and maybe years to come. So on Thursday of last week, President Biden authorized an airstrike on Syria, and the attack was specifically on facilities used by Iranian-backed militias. I'm curious, what do you think this recent attack tells us about Biden's approach on Syria and about how different it is from Trump's approach in Syria? Well, we don't have too many clues in terms of an overarching Biden uh, vision for Syria. And the sense we get right now, especially with these kind of actions, is that there is a great degree of continuity, not just with what the Trump administration did, but also with the preceding Obama administration, which, while it actively pushed against the regime of Syrian President Bashar al-Assad, couldn't do much to really reshape the battle on the ground or or support the forces that could effectively remove him from power. The strike on this Iran-linked militia in Syria was really less about Syria uh, than it was about the complicated geopolitics in Iraq, where Iranian-linked forces there have carried out various attacks uh, on U.S. and Iraqi military positions, in part because the Iranian regime is trying to leverage its various assets to put pressure on the Americans as they try to figure out a way to come back to the table with the Iranians. So this is part of a a, a pretty tricky uh, geopolitical dance, which ultimately has very little to do with the fate of the Syrian population or any kind of process that could lead to a meaningful end of the Syrian war. I also think it's important to talk about Antony Blinken, Biden's new Secretary of State, and how he is going to play a role in all of this. Can you walk through a little bit about who he is, what his general approach is to these kinds of challenges, and how do you think he is going to affect U.S. policy in the Middle East? Well, Blinken is is a known quantity, both in Washington and in foreign capitals elsewhere. He's a tremendously erudite, veteran diplomat of successive American administrations. Uh, He's somebody who grew up for a period of time in in Europe and speaks fluent French. This is a pretty significant departure from a figure, let's say, like Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and his Kansas swagger. Blinken, though, is very much uh, 
a creature of the Washington establishment. And the fact that Blinken is so different from Pompeo and has such a different professional background and uh, more experience in dealing with foreign policy under the Obama administration, under the Clinton administration, what difference do you think that's going to make in actual policy right now? Well, we've talked in Washington for such a long time about having adults in the room and Blinken would certainly count as one. He's somebody with a degree of expertise, a certain level of sobriety around these issues, uh, commitment to understanding them fully. He's He's been around the block in many contexts. Of course, he is very much a creature of the Washington establishment. And you have, he has critics on the left who, you know, point to a series of missteps, whether it's in in supporting the Iraq war or or sort of pointing to various Obama-era failures when it comes to the Arab Spring or navigating the conflict in Syria. Uh, so he's he's not somebody beyond reproach by any means. So in terms of these criticisms from the left that Blinken supported decisions like invading Iraq, is, the, is there a fear that that will be his stance going forward, that he will be more of an interventionist than some Democrats want to see right now? I think, and and maybe I'll be proven wrong in the years to come, that we're sort of past this kind of era of characterizing certain policymakers as liberal interventionists now. I don't think there's anybody in the Biden administration who's that eager to be participating or prolonging or concocting new interventions around the world. You've heard from an array of Biden officials, including the National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, that the Biden foreign policy agenda is fundamentally, should be a domestic agenda. It's one of, they've called it a foreign policy for the middle class. They don't want to be, you know, engaged in the kind of imbroglios that we saw, you know, say 15 years ago uh, after 9-11. It's an open debate whether Trump really did reduce the American footprint uh, in his time in his office, as much as he talked about troop withdrawals and so on. And then, but the one thing you are seeing, and this is where I guess you can talk about liberal interventionism, is a a renewed commitment to, at the very least, a, a kind of lip service to human rights. You already have Blinken coming out, condemning uh, certain abuses by the Egyptian government, speaking out for protesters in various parts of the world. And the question is, and especially as we go forward and as Biden has to navigate a whole thicket of complicated uh, geopolitics is, you know, to what extent those concerns about human rights, and they very openly said that human rights will matter again to this administration, to what extent the U.S. can, can develop teeth around articulating those concerns. It's interesting because what you are describing in terms of how the Biden administration plans to approach issues abroad, it plans to kind of put more heft behind talking about human rights violations and leaning into diplomacy, but ultimately like not really wanting to get involved. I wonder if that is actually so different from the Trump administration. Like, it does seem that Biden is willing to go out more on a limb to criticize wrongdoings that he sees around the world or to try to uh, put more attention into real diplomacy. But at the end of the day, like, he doesn't really want the U.S. to get that involved or sees that as a risk as well in a way that doesn't seem so different from uh, the Trump administration's attitude of the U.S. should not be getting involved. 
this will be the central tension surrounding how we think about Biden's foreign policy in the months and years to come. He has framed the experience of the Trump years as a kind of rupture, a rupture that he now wants to heal and paper over. And Trump himself characterized his presidency as that rupture. But we're seeing on a lot of fronts a degree of continuity, as you said. That is, of course, in the ways in which the White House approaches Israel. That is, of course, on view when it comes to how they approach some of these Gulf monarchies, which have long-standing security relationships with the American establishment. I think it's important to remember that we're now in various parts of the Middle East marking a decade since the uprisings of the Arab Spring. A decade ago, this was an incredibly hopeful moment for meaningful political change in the region. The Obama administration, to a certain extent, embraced these democratic uprisings. But, of course, the Obama legacy there is is not a happy one. They, they celebrated these aspirations for democracy and greater human rights and greater rule of law. But they eventually didn't do much to buttress these revolutions. They, they went along with a counter-revolution in Egypt. They saw an uprising in Syria morph into a hideous decade-long civil war. And they eventually uh, set their stall next to uh, the same folks that Trump did. And that is the, the, the Arab monarchs in the UAE and Saudi Arabia who have had long-standing relations with Washington and uh, powerful interests there. And so as Biden wrestles with the Israeli-Palestinian question with the Iranian nuclear program, with the war in Yemen, uh, we'll see how much that logic changes. Ishan Tharoor writes about foreign affairs for The Post. He is the author of the newsletter Today's Worldview. that's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. The pandemic has been dragging on for almost a year now. We want to hear how you are coping. Record a voice memo telling us who you are, where you live, and what you've been doing in the last year to find joy. And send it to postreports at washpost.com. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. When your skin feels nourished and glows, you radiate confidence. Osea makes giving your skin a glow up easy with their clean, clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This seaweed-powered duo features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code GLOW.